0: You're listening to WCT.FM Talk Radio like no other.
1: Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. You are listening to WCET FM with the Supernatural Realm with your hosts Tim Roxbury and Chip Reichenfeld, And man, we got a great guest tonight. His years of experience, his his uh, the books that he's written, his his uh, his professionalism, and everything that goes along with it is just phenomenal. And uh, Chip, if you got his bio up, you can. Tell everybody Yeah, I, I
2: do And, and uh, this is Very exciting To have this guest today You know But this is the magic Of Tim Roxbury And yeah, I'll say that Out loud again As I always do Boy, I don't know Where you find these people Man I, I consider this man uh, Actually, Tim and I One of the yeah. great minds Of the world yeah. uh, the, Our guest today Is Stephen A. Schwartz um, He's a, I'm sure he's more modest Than than the hyperbole That we're going to give here <laughs> Uh, But we're really very excited about this. He's been a distinguished consulting faculty member at Saybrook University, research associate of the Cognitive Science Laboratory of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. He's the columnist for the journal Explore, editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net. And in both of which, he covers trends that are affecting the future. He also writes regularly for the Huffington Post. Uh, Stephen A. Schwartz, part of a small group that founded Modern Remote Viewing Research. Wow. (laughs) And is the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology. I mean, how cool is that? He is author of more than 130 technical reports and papers in addition to his experimental studies. He's written numerous magazine articles for Smithsonian, Omni, American History, American Heritage, The Washington Post, The New York Times, as well as other magazines and newspapers. He's produced and written a number of television documentaries and has written four books, The Secret Vaults of Time, The Alexandria Project, Mind Rover, Opening to the Infinite, and his latest, The Eight Laws of Change. And all of them are phenomenal because Here's a guy that knows research better than most researchers do. Uh, so he has some great authority going into any of the subjects we're going to talk about today. That's really thrilling, Tim. Mm, and, sure. you know, bless you for finding this wonderful guy. <laughs> yeah, we got a great show today, man.
1: Yeah. he Stephen, fits perfect, you know, as as a guest of the show because have so many directions we can go. We can talk about Christ. quantum physics. We can talk about the supernatural, the paranormal. Archaeology, remote Archaeology. Viewing, all yeah. the topics that we cover here on the show you know sure. Stephen covers all of that stuff so we're going to talk, in, talk in, in
2: everything he does the thing that fascinates me about Stephen I'm sorry we're not bringing him on because we're so busy glowing <laughs> over him <laughs> yeah is everything that he does when he researches he improves it mm-hmm. you know, but he improves it. Uh, for really the civilization, for right. the culture, to move it in a more positive direction. But he understands science and physics and, uh, you know, metaphysics and, and archaeology and culture and all these different things, but he pinpoints a way to bring us to positive change. Mm-hmm. And he does it, you know, both scientifically and subliminally, but he's a remarkable guy. Stephen. I guess you know we love you, so...
1: (laughs) Welcome to the show, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be
2: with you. (laughs) You It's a real pleasure to have you here. Uh, Timmy, you're up, buddy. You start this off.
1: (laughs) And Stephen, you've done so much. Uh, When did this all begin for you? I Uh, I
3: started... um, I guess I, I really started down this path about 1964. I began experimenting I'm an experimentalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I began experimenting in 1968, and I'm still doing it. Now,
2: wow. 68 was a good year for me, personally. That was I don't a, know about you.
1: That was the year my parents got married, Chip.
2: Was it really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was just a cool year for me. I had a crush on this girl, and she liked me. So, you know, the whole year had this shine to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And everything came into place in 68. I think I was 10. But still, yeah, you know, very cool year. <laughs> Except the Archies had the number one song for that year, and I, I was, I objected, you know, because it was a comic strip, you know. Mm-hmm. So, one thing about the monkeys, but the Archies were not a thing. I'll shut up now, <laughs> Tim. <10 Euro. laughs>
1: You're
2: Excited about 1960. <laughs> that's the that's the Stephen A. Schwartz effect, I yeah. suppose.
1: We were we were talking. Before we uh, got on air about the the product of change and and the, you know how history repeats itself and we were saying how we could change as individuals we touched on that a little bit before the show mm-hmm. and if we can touch on that a little bit now as a way to start the show off that'd
3: be that'd be great. Okay. Well. If you look at social transformation, you find out that real social transformation takes place because individuals change consciousness. It's an individual effect that becomes a social effect. And uh, as I said, you could could look at uh, Gandhi or Martin Luther King uh, in civil rights you know, Gandhi got India independence without a war. That's pretty amazing. I you think about it.
2: He did it with Prince Philip's dad too, Mountbatten. Yeah, dad. and
3: he did it um, because, well, in fact, th- th- this is a story that's worth telling a little bit. Whenever you think you're not powerful or you have nothing to say or you can't make any difference, this story is perhaps is helpful. It starts in the end of the 19th century. With a young transcendentalist, a man named Thoreau, who's sitting next. He's an eccentric. He's considered a kind of an oddball by people who knew him. (laughs) Very bright, but but, but kind of odd.
4: Yeah, I know what that's like.
3: (laughs) And he's sitting by a little pond called Walden Pond. Mm -hmm. And I've been there and it's a pond. It's not a lake. Yeah. And he conceives of a book and writes a monograph, a kind of, not, a, not as big as a book, but almost, you know, sort of bigger than a paper. Mm-hmm. He writes a monograph called Civil Disobedience.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember.
3: And so Gandhi, uh, years later, is a young barrister, a very Anglo-Indian kind of guy, dresses like an Anglo. And he wants, to, he's in South Africa, and he wants to ride first class. He's got a little money. And so he goes to buy a first class ticket and they won't sell it. to him. They won't let him do it. They make, they want him to ride in third class with people who were then called the colored mixed race people.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, um, and that really makes him unhappy. He's so unhappy that he raises a fuss and they put him in jail for a while. And while he's there, uh, it isn't exactly clear h- how he came across it, but he comes across Thoreau's little civil disobedience monograph, and he reads it, and he realizes that this was the path to independence for India. So he leaves South Africa and he goes to India, and he begins the movement that eventually results in Indian independence, and it was a nonviolent movement. Mm. We know from historical research that nonviolent social change is successful 75% of the time, whereas violent change is only successful 25% of the time. Hmm. And not only is it not very successful, but it doesn't last very long <laughs> because it creates animosity and it's exclusionist almost by definition. Hmm. And so if you look at, for instance, national so- socialism, the Nazi movement, that only lasts about 20 years. If you look at communism, it only lasts about 73 years, the lifetime of a single person, mm. whereas the United States, which was begun on pr- on principles of democracy and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we're now going into, you know, we're into uh, more than two two uh, two and a half centuries.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So... You can see historically that nonviolent change works better. But mm-hmm. anyway, Martin Luther King in the in the 50s, early 60s, he also comes across Gandhi and and he reads about Gandhi and he reads about Gandhi's interest in Thoreau's little book Civil Disobedience and he gets mm-hmm. a copy of it and he reads it and he realizes that this is the path to civil rights. And so you have one eccentric 19th century metaphysician, metaphysically oriented guy sitting by a little pond. (laughs) Most people thought was a kind of an eccentric kook. And yet he changes the course of history for three of the largest and most important countries in the world, India, the United States and Great Britain. Wow. So when you think you can't do anything and what you think doesn't matter, just think about Thoreau and what he did with his little manuscript. Mm-hmm. And I could give you many other examples. I mean, you you know, we were talking before we began. Uh, when, When we were boys, if you went around to somebody's house, you saw a coffee table and it had an ashtray and cigarettes and a lighter. You don't see that anymore. Why is that? It isn't that they passed a law against it or that the president came out and said, now we're where I'm I'm giving an executive order that no more smoking or anything. No, it was because individuals made an individual choice that they would change their own personal lives. And when you do that in aggregate, then you get social transformation. You can see it also in the transformation of gay to LGBTQ. Because if you search Google word count, you can see that about two and a half, three years ago, Suddenly, there was this shift in which anybody who was writing about human sexuality stopped talking about the gay community and started talking about the LGBTQ community. Again, it wasn't that anybody passed a law. It was that individuals made a choice. And so let me tell you how your listeners uh, can change the election in 2020. Guaranteed. This comes with a guarantee. Okay. okay. Every single day, you make hundreds of choices. Mm-hmm. You buy a certain kind of toothpaste, a certain kind of gasoline, a certain kind of toilet paper, a certain kind of, of dishwater soap, all kinds of things. Every one of those choices is a vote.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And if you will make the following commitment, you can change the world. hmm Every day you make hundreds of these little decisions. Most people aren't even, don't even recognize them as decisions.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Of the options that are available to you, you make the commitment that you will always choose the one of the options available. You will always choose the one that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being. Hmm. And that you will <laughs> tell 10 people that you're doing this as a discipline and invite them to join you and tell 10 of their friends.
4: Mm-hmm. Well,
3: I don't know how many listeners this show has, but just do the math. You know, yeah. if you start with, I, I just pick a number, I, I don't 100,000, <laughs> and they so, tell 10 people, you got a million, and then right. you got a million, and then you got 100 million. Well, there's, whenever we know from research that has been done, that whenever 10% of any cohort whether it's a school committee, a church group, or a nation, when 10% change in consciousness, that the whole cohort has to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and
2: it, it grows exponentially. I used to, while you were doing research, I was in marketing, you know, and radio, you know, every word that you say, you can enunciate a certain word to make it a little better and it's the subliminal things that really work in people's voting when they vote for toothpaste or when they vote for gasoline or whatever. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, but, so, But a positive word grows exponentially. A negative word can, but a positive word grows more.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So if you complain about something to all your friends, maybe five of them will buy into that complaint. But when you rave about something, you know... Uh, it starts with 13 people and grows exponentially. And like you said, that small percentage can change the world.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just so saying. you, wherever you get 10, whenever you get 10 percent, then the whole cohort has to accommodate to that. And just as you say, positive responses. You know, if someone tells you, "Oh, this is the most wonderful thing I've used in whatever category." You're more likely to go out and use it than if they say something negative about it. Right. So when you think about being that that you're powerless, you don't you know you don't command an army, you don't hold an official position, you don't uh, you don't have vast sums of money. Nonetheless, when when a collective group of individuals hold a common intention. The whole culture changes as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And so between now and 2020, if just the people who are listening to this program today will make this, I call it the quotidian choice commitment. Every day you make hundreds of these little choices, you always choose the one that is most compassionate, most life-affirming, most fostering of well-being. Now none of them may be great choices, but inevitably one is always better. Mm And if you make a choice on that basis and you tell people you're doing that and invite them to join you, by the time 2020 comes around, wh- however many people are listening to this show, multiplied, just do the math, you will see that you can change the consciousness of the country. It's mm-hmm. hard to believe. It doesn't seem to, you know, we don't have any armies. We don't have any a lot of power. We're not the uber rich. But nonetheless. <laughs> When you change collective intention, mm-hmm. you change the zeitgeist of the culture.
2: Right. And yeah, the good news is that our listenership is beautiful. We have a wonderful demographic here that are enthusiastic. They're good, good thinkers and really good-hearted people. You know, the, the one commonality between the listenership is they're better than they believe they are. Right. Every person that we've met in our listenership is better than they believe they are.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And we've tried collective consciousness things here where we have everybody focus on joy, you know, for a moment, and it sends that energy out. So in kind of a metaphysical way, we're uh, really copying what you're talking about in in more of a, uh, a scientific and statistical sense, you know, from a research perspective, With your great work. Mm-hmm. So we've well, got is, a great comment. And,
3: and the, the, the other thing that's important, uh, Chip, is, is that you make a decision that is followed by an action.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: So it's not just that you support joy; it's that you make a choice which fosters the improvement of joy, or as I would say, life-affirming compassion and, and fostering of well-being. But what you know, whatever the words are, it's the it's the choice followed by action, mm-hmm. attitude followed by action. That's the key to the business.
2: Yeah, thank you for saying that. You know, they've got this thing called the law of attraction that we talk about. Yeah. We, I'm not a law of attraction guy because it allows people to think in certain ways, you know, you're already there. All you have to do is believe it and you're there. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, no, you got to do the work, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so action is a very important thing. We should also mention that we are really kind of talking about some material in your latest book, that, which is called The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. Mm-hmm. I see it here on Amazon. Where where else can people find this book, your latest well, you'll
3: book? You go into bookstores, you go to Amazon, <laughs> uh, you go to schwartzreport.net, uh, my daily web publication. You can get it there. Uh, you can get it off my personal website, you can get it off Barnes and Noble. I don't know, all kinds of places, bookstores. Nice. That's that's a book that I wrote specifically because so many people, so many readers of mine, and when I gave talks, so many people came up to me and said, I feel powerless. I don't mm-hmm. feel I can make any difference. Who cares whether I vote or not? What does voting matter? They're all the same thing, blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And I said, no, they are not all the same thing and that you have the power to make change. And so I then be about 18. This started about 18, almost 20 years ago now. So I started doing research on this four times in my life. I have been involved with changing history. Wow. And I have paid close attention to how that happened. And then I've done a great deal of, of research um, and read the research of other people looking at social transformation and out of it emerged these eight laws now i didn't make them up i just recognized them because they were reiterated if you read the process of of what happened i mean the the abolitionists for instance and the women suffragettes and the mm-hmm. the quakers are particularly interesting because there're only about 87,000 quakers in the united states today mm-hmm. And there have been less than 500,000 in the whole course of American history. So it's this tiny, tiny little group. It's so small, most people have never met a Quaker, have no idea what Quakers believe right, or, or what they do or why they do or think what they think. Um, and yet, if you look at every major social transformation throughout American history, starting with abolition of slavery, mm-hmm. going through... Uh, public education, penal yeah, reform, mm-hmm. women's suffrage, the nuclear freeze, the environmental movement—all of those began with a tiny group of Quakers. Mm-hmm. Wow! And so I started reading their biographies, their diaries, their their correspondence, whatever was published that I could get my hands on. <laughs> And what you would see over and over again were these were these same eight principles, these same eight laws. And they're not at all. I mean, you know, when I started, I thought, oh, well, if you want to create social change, you've got to figure out how to fund it. Mm -hmm. And you've got to figure out how to organize it and all that. And it turns out that what I thought was critical, isn't critical, that's not what's critical. The the critical thing, and we can go through the eight laws if you like, sure. and, and talk about it. I mean, the first law is the individuals individually and the group collectively must share a common intention. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've ever belonged to a committee, whether it's a school committee, a church committee, a neighborhood committee, you know that trying to get everybody on board with the same common intention is not easy to do.
2: Right. No, it's, it's not.
3: But you've, that's one of the things you've got to do. You've got to have a common intention. Because why? Because culture is created by collective common intention.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Law number two, the individuals in the group may have goals, but they may not have cherished outcomes. I got this from the abolitionists. They would say things wow. like, slavery is a moral evil, and it must end. I don't know how it's going to happen but I am committed to that happening. Mm -hmm. So you can have a goal ending slavery, but you can't have uh, that it must occur in a certain way because you're not the only player. And so it's the common intention, the the goal that's important. Law number three, the individuals in the group must accept that their goal may not be reached in their lifetimes and be okay with this. Mm-hmm. And I got this again from the abolitionists and also from the women suffragettes, uh, the wow. women okay. who were trying to get the vote. Mm-hmm. And You'd read their diaries or their correspondence and they would say things like, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to get the vote, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to work for it no matter what. Mm-hmm. So you have to be okay. So law number four, the individuals in the group must accept accept that they may not get either credit or acknowledgement for what they've done and be okay with this you know most times people do things and they want to get credit but what uh, stood out for me amongst these people that created social change uh, you can see this in the environmental movement for instance Mm -hmm. is that they began doing it even though they, they knew they would probably always be anonymous right but they did it because it was the right thing to do the
2: right thing to do yeah
3: Yeah. Law number five, each person in the group, regardless of gender, religion, race, or culture, must enjoy fundamental equality, even as the various roles in the hierarchy of the effort are respected. We are high order primates. I said this to a church group once. They got very upset about (laughs) that. Well, we're not going to get upset here. We are (laughs) high order primates. We organize hierarchically. That's just (laughs) built into our genes.
1: Right. and,
3: but you must start, as the, and the founders understood this,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: you must start with fundamental equality. Everybody, regardless of race or gender, religion, enjoys fundamental equality even as the hierarchy is respected. Yeah,
2: We're and all if, you look
3: at, if you look at a movement like um, um, Occupy, you see why they failed. And because they never brought forward a Martin Luther King or a Gandhi or a figure who articulated for the group what its common intention was. So um, that's another reason the hierarchies make a difference. Law number six, the individuals in the group must forswear violence in word, act or thought. Now, this was the hard one for me. Mm-hmm. Because I was involved with civil rights. I heard Dr. King give the I Have a Dream speech. Mm-hmm.
2: Wow. Oh, did you?
3: And when I saw people sicking dogs on women, I I had, I, I had violent thoughts.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I yeah, understand. But that. you
3: have to give that up. That's what Gandhi, a point that he made. Law number seven, the individuals in the group itself must make their private selves consistent with their public postures. And you know all of us uh, but the three of us could name a whole list of so-called spiritual leaders mm. whose public selves and private selves were completely yeah, completely
2: obvious. different yeah. yeah 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 the ones that get the great success like that you know but they, yeah,
3: so, they, they,
2: they got in on the wrong terms they're not listening to you you if they listen to you they'd be much better you know
3: it, we're you not know,
2: dogging on all of them, but right. there are certain people
3: yeah I got this actually from Benjamin Franklin. Oh, he was sent as the ambassador, plenipotentiary to France, to try to get Louis, to the king, to finance an American revolution. Um, He got a letter from a woman who was a friend of his, who said to him, "Dr. Franklin, he was then, by the way, the most famous man in the world."
4: Sure, Uh, and
2: and a a ladies' man, by the way, big yes,
3: and a ladies' man. (laughs) But the most famous, I mean, you know, he, because he discovered electricity, they thought. And, mm-hmm. and um, anyway, a woman, friend of his, wrote him a letter and said, I'm pretty sure your valet is a spy for the British.
1: Oh, wow. wow.
3: And he wrote back and said to her, "Inasmuch as as I say in private, only what I say in public, if, the val- <laughs> if my valet in all other respects is good at his job as he is, I don't care <laughs>
1: because there was
3: nothing to expose. Right. right. Everything he said in private is what he said in public, and everything That's he it. said in public was what he said in private. So, having a spy as his valet didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Right. It turned out, by the way, he was a spy. <laughs> yeah, I and believe the that. Law, the eighth law is the individuals in the group and the group collectively must always act from the beingness of life-affirming integrity. Right. Now, that's
2: what we shoot for here. I've got this thing based on your eight questions. Two things I wanted to comment about. One was spiritualism, Mm -hmm. you know, which started in the latter 1800s. There was an area in Rochester and Buffalo, New York called the Burnt Away District. Right. And uh, Franz Mesmer was uh, big on, on spiritualism. You know, they had a... A few famous people that were big on it but they started in the most evangelical area that they could find and they did it purposefully because they wanted to change the tide and they were big on abolition and they were big on the women's uh, suffragette movement you know and they they did it to take this area that they thought would be the most opposite to their beliefs and change the culture and over time, they did. You know, it helped that they had famous friends. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, based on the eight laws of change, and tell me if I'm wrong here, please. I'm not a conspiracy guy. You know, there's a in in our industry, we have a lot of people that get their information from con- conspiratorial situations and buy into it. See, to me, a conspiracy takes a bunch of selfish people who are trying to do the wrong thing. But you've got all these individual selfish people that won't really get on board uh, by, you know, saying out loud what they say in private and a conspiracy falls apart. That's my opinion. But a collective consciousness, on the other hand, when you when you can get thousands of people to buy into just, you know, sending uh, love and joy out into the atmosphere and realize that they have changed uh, random people. At random, because that energy will flow over people and improve their day, or people crying out for help may get it. People in pain may feel better. And it's just this random thing. And knowing that they've done that adds to their their personal quality. You know, I've changed something today. Uh, so I wanted to ask your opinion on conspiracies versus collective consciousness, because in my opinion, one doesn't work and one does. And then I wanted to ask you the four things that you did that changed history. But first, your opinion on it. uh, And based on these eight laws of change, I'm going to, I want to base it on that, 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 that question.
3: Well, conspiracies generally have uh, a negative connotation. They're Mm -hmm. usually about power and they're about secret cabals that are gaining power and, Whereas collective consensus is not about some consciously organized uh, attempt to take power, mm-hmm. but instead is about a consciousness of how to behave, how to be.
2: And generosity, yeah. Right.
3: And it's that beingness that makes the difference. That's, that's how Gandhi was able to get you know, India has got all kinds of different groups and religious groups and racial groups and mm-hmm. And they're at each other's throats a lot of the time historically have been at how did he get all those people to get on board? Right. And the reason was he didn't argue it from the point of view of power. He argued it from the point of view of beingness. Right. He said to them, it is your beingness. You know, before just before he was assassinated in 1948, a reporter came up to interview him at his ashram. And you can imagine now he's dressed in his little dhoti, this little sort of cotton thing, and and he's got his little spinning wheel, and <laughs> and he, you know, he doesn't look like the Anglo-Indian of South Africa. And he and his the reporter says to him, Gandhi, my editor sent me up to ask only one question. And he said, Well, what's the question? And the guy said. My editor wants to know how you forced the British to leave India. You didn't have an army. You don't have an official position. You don't have any money. How did you force one of the most powerful nations on earth to give up its most precious colonial possession? And Gandhi's answer just blew this guy away. He said, it's not what we did that mattered, although that mattered. It's not what we said that mattered, although that mattered. It was the nature of our character Mm -hmm. that led the British to choose to leave India. Not force, choose choose to leave India. And he understood that it was this beingness issue. When you hold a consciousness that recognizes fundamental equality, then you can't be a racist. When you hold a a, a, a state of beingness that recognises that well-being ought to be the function of culture to create increased well-being, then you don't operate out of greed. So the, 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 the puzzle is not a complicated intellectual one, It is essentially a deeply emotional one and it's about today everything I do is going to foster Mm well-being from the individual to the family to the community to the state to the nation to the planet itself everything I'm doing I'm going to do to foster Mm well-being and so when you come from that perspective the way you treat the kid that's behind the the convenience store <laughs> counter or the woman that's cleaning your office or whatever mm-hmm. you come from a position i want to do and hold you in a in a consciousness of fostering well-being mm-hmm. and you respond to people differently
4: Mm-hmm, you now, mm-hmm.
3: what's really going on in the United States right now is that we're being torn apart yeah. because there is a percentage of us who are in a state in a fear fugue. Right, mm-hmm. right. We're,
4: we're trying to snap a majority, people
3: out of that. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. we're becoming a majority minority country. All
4: right.
3: We're be, he... We are. We are gradually becoming a gender equality company, a country. Mm-hmm. Country. We are at least notionally becoming a racially racial equality country. Yeah. And for a certain number of people, that means they're going to lose their get out of jail card. <laughs> they're going to lose the, the, the free pass that allows them to Lord it over other people. And it freaks them out and it yeah. fills them with fear and hate and resentment. Right. right. I That's- look at research almost every day. I, I see sociological psychological research that that makes this point about the hate and fear that is driving the movement that is that is backing the president that is backing the kinds of of gender suppressive movements the voter suppression the gerrymandering all of that is being driven by hate and fear. Mm-hmm. And it's fear of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We are right. in conflict with the founders, and we are tearing the country that they envisaged apart.
4: Yes. Yeah.
2: But they did a great job, the founders, you know. I, I mean, I always marvel at, at the job that they did and all the things that they foresaw that they added into, you know, the Constitution, Bill of Rights, Things of that nature, which are applying as we speak, you know, but apply in in any presidency or in any point in our history. There's always something flirting with those things that the founding fathers predicted. <laughs> I mean, how fascinating is that? But yeah, we, th- we just wanted to thank you though uh, for for bringing this uh, this eight laws of change here. The book is available. Stephen A. Schwartz, Stephen with a PH, not a B, just so you know. Stephen A. Schwartz, uh, The Eight Laws of Change. I, I mean, that, that is that is beautiful. And, and we we try to do that here, too. To, you know, leave a, leave a good legacy behind. Be right. the best person that you can be. My sister used to call it angel moments, what you were talking about with B, mm. where we would just randomly smile. We'd walk down the street and smile at everybody that walked opposite us, you know, to mm-hmm. see how many people would smile back. Or compliment somebody on the best French fries that we've had in in weeks at a fast food joint. To to compliment, say, thank you. Who made these fries? Find out. Say, dude, these are the best fries that I've had in a long time. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. It's those little things. Or just random conversations with people. But still, even with all this fear and hate that we see in the media, I mean, I walk the streets and I see acts of kindness everywhere. I think most of these people don't want to be hateful. They don't want to be fearful. It's almost like this cultural thing that's driving them toward it, but they're resisting. And we see a lot of people looking up that want hope, that want to be better, that want to be better than what we are portrayed as right now publicly. And it's a beautiful thing. So thank you for what you're doing.
3: Well, thank you very much for noting it. (laughs)
2: That's <laughs> it's, it's been, Timmy probably wanted to get a word in there,
1: but uh, um, I I think that's why some people turn in turn to other belief systems, uh, metaphysical beliefs, oh, outs- outside the, the outside outside the mainstream, yeah. outside the mainstream church. Because a lot of it today is, is about fear mongering. It's it's fear based religion is what it is, mm-hmm. and people are are moving away from that. Yeah, Both in a positive end.
2: This negative paranormal sense. show, the supernatural realm, right. you know, there there are a lot of good things that happen even in with ghosts and extraterrestrial contact mm-hmm. stories and things of that nature that we can point out because it doesn't always have to be not fear-based.
1: Right. Most
2: of our industry, if you watch the TV shows about ghosts and stuff, they're taunting spirits and, and doing all sorts of stuff so they can get something on camera for the studio audience or they're locking themselves in dark places and screaming at every little thing that moves, you know, when that's not our experience at all.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: We've yeah. had some excellent contact experiences in that supernatural realm that we're trying to bring out, just to show people that even in the darkest corners, there is loving things or benevolent things, you know, good things do happen everywhere. But somebody's got to point it out.
4: Mm-hmm. And
1: know, like and like Thomas Fusco says in his book, Chip, and it's 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 not really about ghosts or spirits, it's about something non local becoming local.
3: Mm-hmm. In right, space right. time. And and well, let me leave, let me leave you with this thought, guys. Mm-hmm. The key to dealing with climate change is going to be found in recognizing that we live in a matrix of consciousness. Right. Mm-hmm that all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent mm-hmm. and that we do not have dominion over the earth we are simply a factor in the earth and that the earth's great systems of which we are a part can be influenced by us but ultimately they will prevail
2: right right
3: and, cl- yeah. and climate change is going is a civilization threatening transition that we are going through and the choices that we make. If we do not recognize the ro- that what Max Planck, the father of quantum mechanics, said mm-hmm. when he was asked, what have you learned? You know, they came to him and said, you're one of the most famous scientists in the world, you and Einstein. All
1: right.
3: So what have you learned? <laughs> in 1931, they asked him that at an interview by the Observer newspaper in Great Britain. And his answer just blew him away. He said, what I've learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You're right. <laughs> you and it was part of a, behind, all of his work. All of his yes, work was based on consciousness. You cannot get conscience. behind consciousness. Right. Conscious, space-time arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time. Right. You can't get behind consciousness. We must understand consciousness if we are going to understand reality.
2: Well, we're starting to see that here with some of the the, the people that we've worked with here on this show. Sure. The yeah. Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research right. into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary. You know, there's six men to walk the moon, he came back a changed man. And he absolutely believed that we are not alone. And he yes. was looking into that. And his work, they started the quantum holographic theory, which includes consciousness as an energy form. It's like, kind of a subtle vibration that you don't see. Personally, I think it's something to do with the empty space in each atom. You know. I,
3: well, I, it's it's not. I, I would I, I knew Ed, and um, I would disagree slightly in that this is not about space time. This is mm-hmm. this is an aspect. Space-time is a subset of the non-local domain. Right. Mm. The non-local domain is not a subset of space-time. And that this isn't about energy. It's about information. Mm -hmm. Okay. Information being manipulated by intentioned consciousness. Thank you. And the power
2: of our intent, nobody talks about, and it would be be beyond anything that is currently part of our general belief system now. Our intent can be Everything.
1: Kip, I hear an echo when Thomas says about information.
3: Information. <laughs> when you when you um uh, when you look at the research, for instance, you it's very clear that all non-local task performance, whether it's healing or or channeling or remote viewing or pre precogn- whatever,
4: mm-hmm.
3: all of it, the key to it is the ability to attain and sustain intentioned, focused awareness. Yeah. We know from the research that meditators consistently do better than non meditators. That's why meditation is taught in martial art dojos mm-hmm. and Buddhist monasteries and Christian monasteries is because from, a, from a, a, a observational empirical science, it has been learned. You know, if you think about religion, it's really a series of protocols. Mm-hmm. We call them rituals, but they're yeah. really protocols right. Dogma. for opening yeah. to non local consciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, true. Becoming aware that you are more than animated meat. Right.
2: are <laughs> <laughs> a species of animals. Yeah. yeah t- Timmy, you could ask him about your too low thing or whatever that was we were talking about. What's uh? The question you had yesterday for the other guys the ch- Chinese things that you brought up there.
1: Oh, uh, too.
2: Yeah. Could bring that up.
1: Yeah.
2: I don't know if you're familiar with that. I can ask you to okay. You you can ask that question. Then I've got one that'll keep me out of the doghouse for the rest of the week. So you first, Tim.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about different belief systems on well actually Chip was on a show yesterday and I brought up a question about Latsu (laughs) and I asked the the guest if it was familiar with if Latsu was uh, similar to what uh, on Research uh, was doing, and he said there there are similarities to it.
3: Well, let's get let's get uh, both more specific and even broader, Tim. Okay. If you think about it, every religion begins with the with a single individual having a non-local consciousness experience. Right. Jesus awakens when he's baptized and he goes into the desert for 40 days. Mohammed goes into the cave and is awakened. The Gabriel comes to him. The Buddha sits under the tree and is awakened. So all religions
1: it's all similar.
3: begin with a single individual having a non-local consciousness experience. Mm. Wow. That's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is, the individual has to be sufficiently charismatic that when he talks about it, people listen to him. But even more importantly, he has to be speaking to the culture in a way that resonates with the culture because that's the difference between a prophet and a crank. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Very good. Wow.
3: You know, if,
2: that's if beautiful.
3: you're a guy who's saying something, um, if, if people don't resonate to what you're saying, well, you're just a crank, right? Yeah. So the, the, the key here is that religion is an experience, which is a social process, which begins with a single individual, but which has social acceptance. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing.
4: Okay.
3: And then individuals listen to what that person says. And they write it down, and that's how scripture gets created in dogmas and priesthoods. But all of that is man-made.
2: Right, it is, yeah. They, now, they take this non-local thing and, and men make it. <laughs> yeah,
3: now, this is true regardless of what religion, whatever religion you're talking about. Right. Now, let's look at religion as it is practiced. All religions begin is there is the place that you gather. Mm-hmm. to express community intention. So whether it's a temple or a shrine or a synagogue or an Etruscan oak grove, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Now, we know from research that when you designate a spot to be a focus of intentioned awareness, that it informationally enriches it in the non-local. Mm-hmm. That's why it's easier for a remote viewer to see the Chartres Cathedral than it is a warehouse of the same size. Uh-huh. I mean, I've mean, i actually done the research. This is not theoretical. This is based on... That's in a fact, thing. That's, almost my, my everything I say is up based is on about research.
2: That. Yeah. Yeah, my, so, my question coming up is about that. Just so all
3: know. right. So the act of intentioned awareness creates sacred space. That's why there is the importance of the place. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't physically change it. But it changes it in the non-local information architecture of the place, right? Right. You gather at the place. Mm-hmm. Then you begin with a statement of common intention. If you're a Christian, it's the Nicene Creed. If it's a, if you're a, a Buddhist, it's a, a, a sutra. So you make a statement of common intention, and th- what that's doing is beginning a process of Mm, brain-entraining. There's a whole area of neuroscience started by a guy named Andrew Newberg Mm. called neurotheology, in which they have measured people, their brain activity, Mm. while they are involved with religious services. And what happens is their brains become entrained.
4: Because
3: you are building, again, common intention. Mm. (laughs) So then there is a period of time during which some individuals within the community, not all of them, and, and you don't know which one and you don't know when, mm-hmm. but that the potential exists for some of the community to have a public non-local consciousness experience, mm-hmm. speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing. <laughs> Snakes. <laughs> whatever. Again, and that validates the religion, to the believers but what it's really doing this is all empirical science in the same way that acupuncture is an empirical science wow. or or a ayurvedic medicine <laughs> is empirical science Dude, we're bowing so you. Man. Then you have the, the recommitment oh then there is always a period of singing dancing drumming chanting right why because that causes further entrainment Mm -hmm. of everybody's brains. It's like collective
2: dopamine.
3: (laughs) Yes. And then there is the recommitment to gather again Mm -hmm. at another chosen time. So if you think about it, I mean, I'm an experimentalist. So when I look at religion, what I'm looking at is the comparison of religious rituals, which I think of as empirical protocols and looking at actual research that validates what's going on in religions. We know, for instance, that it is possible for the intention of one organism to have an effect on the well-being of another organism for good or ill, by the way, mm-hmm. which is where the whole idea of curses comes from. <laughs> wow. or, no curse without a belief in a lie. curse.
2: That's my All
3: of that. We know that It's possible because there are dozens, hundreds of experiments which show that people holding common intention cause changes in the organism, which is the focus of that intention, Mm -hmm. whether it's a bacteria or a fungus or a fish or a bird or a human being. Then you look at the incidence of the use of wine and water Mm -hmm. in religious ceremonies, I did an experiment some years ago in which I had healers uh, focus on, uh, while they were doing their healing, to have little bottles of of a very special pure water in glass bottles on the palms of their hands. And while they were doing the healing and then to use infrared spectrophotometry to measure the... The compare the water compared to control samples, Wow. and wow. what we found was that there was an absolutely uniform change mm-hmm. that occurred in the molecular structure of the water. Of the water, yeah, So you see where holy water comes from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does it become holy water? Because yeah. a priest or priestess holds intention-focused awareness with the water as the target. Right. Mm-hmm. You know that. So
2: Go ahead. People say that water could be the best antibiotic that we have. All we have to do is train the water because well, the water responds to
3: our intention, you know. That's that's right. Yeah. And not only that, but if you look at wine for instance, wine has always been associated with religion and also mm-hmm. There are always, it's been recognized to have psychoactive properties. Right. So there's a kind of recreational use of, of <laughs> More wine.
2: dopamine, yeah. Yeah.
3: And so why wine as opposed to water? And the re- answer is because raw water, as it's described in science, uh, can be dangerous. And people knew that. You couldn't just drink any water. Right. But you could drink wine.
2: True. Alcohol kills the germs.
3: Yes, because uh, alcohol, that's exactly right. Now, we also know from studies, for instance, Dean Radin did uh, studies that um, where he had Buddhist monks focus on uh, chocolate and tea and then have people eat either the treated chocolate, that is the chocolate that had been part of the focus group, or chocolate which is exactly the same but which had not been and they would overwhelmingly pick the treated chocolate the chocolate that had been the focus of intention so there is an aesthetic sensorial subjective reaction mm-hmm. I did a, a, an experiment in which I had meditators focus on I would buy a bottle of wine split it into two carafes and I would have one of the carafes be the focus of meditation for twenty minutes, mm-hmm. and the other uh, bo- the other carafe of wine. It's the same bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. The other three hundred and seventy-five milliliter uh, carafe didn't get that attention. And then I would give the carafes to somebody, and I would tell him, "I'm going to make a big wine buy, and I've got these two wines. and I've gotten down to two wines, and would you? It's exactly the same wine. But mm-hmm. what I told him was." I have I have two wines that I'm thinking of buying, and it's a big buy for me, and it's going to cost several hundred dollars, and um, so would you have some friends taste these two wines and tell me which one is the better wine? Now, I won't be there because I don't want to cue them. Right. But, it's uh, like, like the control
2: group, them. so you don't want yeah. them to know. Yeah.
3: Would you have them taste these two wines? And I did it 12 times, and in 11 out of 12 times, they picked the treated wine.
2: Wow. You know that makes sense. In in Switzerland and in Japan, they did studies on water, where they had one bin of water. They put oil in it, man-made uh, treated oil, not just natural, but you know, man man-treated. So it's like doubly polluted. And they took one uh, of these bins of water, and said, "Oh man, you look you look terrible." You know, <laughs> boy, uh, you know, I'm not touching you. And they took the other one, and they were exceptionally nice. Look at how beautiful you are. This divine water. You know, we're sorry to see that this treatment came to you. We didn't mean for it to hurt or bother you because you're to us, you're divine. You're beautiful. And the the water that was that people had, were nice to actually cleaned itself. It separated the oil out, so you had the water and the oil. And the other bin just stayed polluted, basically, because you know it was treated terribly.
3: Yeah. Well, you can see. That's an example, uh, Chip, where you can see we can look, if, if you look at religion without getting lost in the dogmas and fights about which dogma is correct yeah.
2: and <laughs> instead per, just which look prayer at works.
3: it. Yeah, yeah as, as empirical science, you can see that across all time, religion, and geography, mm-hmm. the same fundamental principles arise mm-hmm. because they are observed to be true, and so they become built in. And so what we, what religion calls ritual in science, we call protocol. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: And I called it in psychology, self-fulfilling prophecy. That's another, we kind of have a problem with the medical industry and the mental health industry because they label people. You've got somebody smarter than you, you think something's wrong with you, so you have to see somebody smarter with you, and then they give you a label. You're bipolar, have a nice life. And it becomes a self fulfilling <laughs> prophet. Well, this guy said I'm bipolar, so I'm going to prove him right. You know, So they're on this path to discount anything that goes against that diagnosis mm. and buy completely into that diagnosis, which makes it worse. And then it separates you from your community because that guy, they got the NIMBY factor, not in my backyard. I don't want a bipolar person to <laughs> me. You know PTSD. You know poor soldiers yeah. they come home and are labeled PTSD. The D says disorder, mm-hmm. and it separates them from their community. And and it, they buy into their being buys into that they're different now.
4: And,
3: and that's, it, it's that's
2: hard, why it's harder to heal.
3: That's why psychoactive. Uh, they're using psychoactive drugs like <laughs> ayahuasca, ketamine, and. To,
2: oh, uh, If they did
3: more of that, they'd have a lot of cures. Well, it's <laughs> there's a big literature that's coming out now mm-hmm. as this research is finally being permitted showing exactly that these people reassess themselves in a way that is not just a label somebody puts on them and that it changes the whole nature of their consciousness and their view of themselves and the world. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, so if you, if you look at, if you look at, religions as empirical sciences mm. and you recognize that that for instance in a number of them there are a, there's a psychoactive component you can see that it's about opening to non-local consciousness and right. that when you open to non-local consciousness it changes your whole perspective on the it, world you look at the really people that have near death experiences right you know? yeah you know, they come back with a completely different view about continuity of consciousness, about mm-hmm. themselves.
2: Quality about of their life.
3: Their, yes, yeah. about and it changes their whole lives.
2: Yeah, it does. We see it with paranoia. You see stuff move across a room on its own. It changes the way you see the world. You know, yeah. my my childhood best friend came to me at the moment of his death. He was in Florida, but he was next to me at the time asking, you know, he was brain dead. And he wanted my blessing to let him die because <laughs> yeah. he was a very independent guy. And now he can't do anything. He can't think. He, you know, people are bathing him. So I gave him my blessing, you know. And 10 minutes later, my mom comes out of the house, said, well, they pulled the plug on him in Florida. So he died 10 minutes ago. So he was with me at that time. Changes everything. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. a non-local thing. You know all the things we talk about. Near-death experience people are more prone to extraterrestrial contact. It's showed in the survey from the Free Foundation of Dr. Edgar Mitchell.
3: Free yeah, Foundation. I wrote a novel, by the way, um, on uh, extraterrestrials called Awakening. Oh, that—that
2: that is you, because it said Stephen Schwartz, and not Stephen A. Schwartz. So I wasn't sure if it was.
3: Oh no, same. that's me. Oh uh, wow! I've, I've written. A, I've also written a series of novels. Uh, the Vision, another one's coming out called The Amish Girl. But Awakening is everything that I knew based on my study of extraterrestrials and what's going on.
4: Wow.
2: Yeah, and, and we see, you know, the, the, the Free Foundation did a survey of 4,000 people that had extraterrestrial contact. But they were, remained anonymous. They were asked subjective and objective questions, both. They had open-ended questions in the survey. A long story short is they found that 74% of all the people polled, from all around the world, all different walks of life, all different beliefs, all different jobs, 74% overall claimed that the experience, especially an afterthought, was positive, was kind, was healing. Some people got information, mathematics or physics that's a little more advanced than our current physics here. You know, there were a lot of really positive experiences, but the media always talks about 7% of people uh, said that their experiences were negative and traumatic, 7% overall. But that's the ones that, that, those are the stories that all the TV stations play, you know, it's always abduction is scary and this and that. But the thing about it is we're learning from this extraterrestrial contact. We have more people, you know, pretty much coming away with exactly what you're saying. Yeah. They see the world differently because there are other dimensions here and they realize that their consciousness has power, their intent has power. They come out of it more spiritual, not religious per se, but spiritual, Yeah. which is a little different. It's enhanced and really based on finding joy out of non-local things that adds the joy to your local things. You yeah. know? And that's kind of the thing we talk about here. I got a question for you that will keep me out of the doghouse. I think like I go
1: on break. break. So.
2: Okay. Why don't we do? We, why do need to do that? And then I'll
1: okay. I'll that's yeah, your, that's I'm your in
2: question. the I'm in the doghouse a lot. By the way, we love you officially. We'll say it officially. Yes, we do, <laughs> and we mean it. <laughs> we absolutely love you. Stephen A. Schwartz is our our honored guest today,
1: and we're very excited to have him on the show tonight. Yeah, very excited. And
2: boy, I, I mean, every every book that he has out is based on uh, really deep research. I mean, probably one of the best researchers we've ever met. Nope. You know, I would say that out loud. Okay. And I guess, uh, Timmy, uh, are, are we doing it?
1: We're doing on break now.
2: Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be back. We'll be back. On right the supernatural this. realm. On FM. You're listening to <laughs> WCET.FM.
1: How, how much Talk longer are we going to go, guys? Like no other. Uh, just, a couple, just a couple minutes. Oh,
3: Maybe just two, a couple minutes? Just two, okay. just two, three minutes. Okay. Yeah, because that's what I thought.
1: And so I, I just... Okay. We'll be back.
2: We can glow about you if you have to leave her.
3: No, no, that's okay. I'm, uh, that's all right. Go ahead.
2: You don't go by, the supernatural realm exactly? Why do people have paranormal or mystical experiences? Is there some science behind it they're not looking at? Why do some people have negative encounters and others don't? What are the best methods to use and is there some no truth to them? We'll ask these questions on the hit radio show, Supernatural Realm, with Tim Roxbury, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your co-host, Chip Reikenthal. Supernatural Realm, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 to 9 Eastern, leading into Michael Vera's Late Night in the Midlands at 9, right here on WCETFM, because that's where the action is.
0: Late Night in the Midlands is for the people, by the people. No shady backroom deals here. We expose the truth, no matter who it leads to. We are an independent media who holds no one above the truth and have no alliances and no agenda. However, we do ask that you donate, and we also offer subscriptions to help support our work and keep LNM on the air. We are not mainstream media that is owned and controlled by the New World Order. We are not alternative media that has been infiltrated with paid agents in wild fantasy. No, no. We are a free-thinking, free-speaking, tell-it-like-it-is, independent media It just happens to cover everything but not fall for anything. The best guest, the best information, Late Night in the Midlands, independent media, exposing the truth, one show at a time.
1: Back on a supernatural realm on WCT Welcome back, listeners. Chip, uh, you there,
2: buddy? Was what, Was that Asia there? <laughs> <laughs> trying to remember my '80s man. It's good stuff, whatever it is. Asia, right? Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so.
2: <laughs> okay, this is going to keep me out of the doghouse. Uh, our guest, our honored guest, Stephen A. Schwartz. Uh, has written some of the most amazing books that are out. He has made t- television documentaries. Uh, he has uh, hundreds of articles throughout some of the best magazines and newspapers worldwide. And he's on Supernatural realm with us, and he's about to keep me out of the doghouse for the rest of the week.
1: Stephen, you there? The way, it, huh? Oh, I'll Stephen if he's there.
2: Yeah. You're with us, right? Oh, he's muted, I think.
1: Okay. Hold on. Let me unmute him. Yeah. He can't. Uh, shoot. <laughs> oh crap!
2: Okay,
3: can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, now we can. Yeah. Okay. All right,
2: there we go. Now, uh, and I, I just wanted to say for the record, if you do have to leave early, or if you have something coming up and you can't make it for the full hour, we can glow about you after you leave because <laughs> we've got all, all your all your bu- information about all your books. You know, I got the Amazon going. I didn't realize that this, uh, Stephen Schwartz and Stephen A. Schwartz
1: were the, the same guy, same,
2: <laughs> which is even better because wow, those books are uh, incredible. But in in the bio, we described you as uh, uh, one of the founders of modern remote viewing. So this question is going to keep me out of the dog.
1: We got to talk about that. My wife
2: actually wanted to ask it on air, you know, but I think she's got like the housewives or whatever going on now. <laughs> so,
1: yeah
2: just what is what it is but here's the thing and it's above my pay grade honestly i mean we research a lot of different things we've been a part of a lot of different things but remote viewing hasn't been one of them you know i've got some psychic abilities that i could talk about but i can't imagine myself being able to remote view so i will ask my wife's question how can you teach somebody how to remote view
3: oh well to teach somebody how to remote view is very simple I mean, I can teach you to remote view in about twenty-five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got um, it. <laughs> I mean, it's not—it's not very complicated. Um, it's a. There are two components to it. The okay. First component is, you have a native level of ability. It's spread through the population, like any other human ability, whether it's violin playing or golfing or basketball or. Or woodwork, or so. You know, this is something happening. really
2: anyone could do. It's not like some people can do it and some people
3: can't. No, about about twelve percent of the population are really good at it. Okay. Uh, an, about a smaller percentage either cannot or will not give themselves permission to do it, mm-hmm. and therefore they are um, they don't produce good results. And the same people, thing with
2: self-hypnosis, you know, some people yeah, just most, won't listen to somebody else controlling them.
3: Exactly. Most of people fall somewhere in the middle. Okay. So it's a bell curve, you know, it mm-hmm. looks, mm-hmm. Uh, distribution looks like a bell.
2: Sure. We've got that for suggestibility index and hypnosis. Yeah, it's, it's
3: true, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So the learning to do it is very simple. I mean, I can, I'll get to that in just a second, but... The key to it, of being successful with it, is the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. Okay. So, so there are a lot of ways to do it. Uh, uh, you know, I'm one of the small group of people, myself, Hal Putoff, Russ Targ, Ed May, Jim Spottiswood, uh Pat Price, Ingo Swan, Hella Hammond, George McMullen, who created it. Mm-hmm. Joe McMonagall. Wow. Um, but in the science, I mean, really, it was a tiny little science group. Myself, Russ, Hal, Ed, Jim. Th- that was really pretty much it. <laughs> I'd like to be a fly
2: on the wall in that group.
3: And, um, and we came at it because... Up, up to the we. St- I started in '68.
2: Okay.
3: Uh, I think Russ and Hal started in the early '70s. Ed and Jim James started a little bit later. You know, it's kind of overlapped, but there's small differences. Mm-hmm. We got into this because, at the time, parapsychological research was mostly about guessing dice and <laughs> right. cards and, and you know, Zenner cards, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the principal effect that was reported was what's called the decline effect. Mm-hmm. That is, the more people did it, the worse they got.
4: Right.
3: And the reason was, it's boring to cast cards or dice. <laughs> or it just was a very poor protocol design.
4: Mm-hmm. So what yeah.
3: we were looking for was a, a a protocol which allowed free response, like having a conversation, mm-hmm. like we are now, and um, which people would enjoy and remain stimulated by, because that would eliminate the decline effect, and it did.
2: Right. And and in your in your book, the eight laws of change which is available, by the way, you know, you could get it on Amazon or any bookstore. But you talked you, you really talked about the essence of being, you know, and it sounds to me like this is what you brought into remote viewing. You allowed people to get affected from the being out. So the intent was kind of uh, easier to uh, make either in a group or, or, uh, you know, by individual people. Does that sound about right?
3: Um, yeah, we, what we were trying to do was to access this aspect of consciousness. We didn't understand it very well. And you can see that in the word remote viewing, which is a terrible uh, (laughs) and, and completely wrong term because it has nothing to do with remote and it has nothing to do with viewing, viewing. (laughs) (laughs) but that was our level. That was a word coined by Ingo Mm Swann. I started out calling it distant viewing, which is equally bad. <laughs> and I got into it um I didn't know anybody in parapsychology.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I got into it because beginning in 1964 uh I began to I had a series of experiences and to understand them I started reading I I started with the metaphysical stuff that mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Blavatsky, Uspensky, Gurdjieff, Steiner. Wow! But I really and I read all of that, and then I came across the Edgar Casey readings. Ah! And I decided to read all of the Edgar Casey readings from first to last in order. Wow! And uh, there are about fifteen thousand of them.
2: Yeah, I can't do that in a day. That's for sure. No, no. It,
3: t- <laughs> uh, it, took, uh, it took about five years. <laughs> to read all this stuff and then about halfway through i thought well i really ought to start reading what science knows about this and so i started reading all the parapsychological journals okay. and i read all the parapsychological journals and many books right i mean that's what i did i did basically yeah. 12 well it's good that you didn't
2: really get together with any parapsychologists because I didn't every, know anybody. every single one we met made us feel stupid as hell yeah, <laughs> no, I, no, I didn't um, talk down to you, you
4: know.
3: Yeah, <laughs> no, I didn't know. I didn't know anybody. I just, I had these experiences, and then I wanted to understand what what was going on, and so I started reading this stuff. And then in '68, having uh, now read most of the journals, and I was probably about two thirds of the way through the the Casey readings, and I. Uh, basically that's the largest body of remote viewing extant, I decided to start experimenting. And as I say, I didn't know anybody. I just invented an experiment Mm -hmm. and I created a grid in my back garden with some nylon rope and some tent stakes. I started with a 12 by 12 grid, 12 squares, And then eventually I got it up to 144 squares because I realized that would make it more statistically impressive.
2: Well, it's a heck of a backyard, you
3: know. (laughs) Yeah, Well, I had this large garden. It didn't really make any difference. Um, And so I would take mason jars and 35 millimeter film cans and I would put objects in them of various sizes. That's why the two different sizes. Okay. And I'd bury them in a grid and I'd, I I made a paper copy of the grid on a mimeograph machine. And I would send it out to people and I sent it out. Originally, I wasn't really aware of the distance factor, but it was clear in the Casey readings that it didn't matter where the people were that he was giving the readings. So then I as I began to think about it, I thought, well, distance doesn't really matter. And then I realized that when I would send these pieces of paper out to people to ask them, I would say to them, first of all, locate the the square that has whatever it is I'd buried. Please pick out of the 144 well, first 12, then up to 144 uh, squares, pick the one that's got the buried thing, and then describe it for me. Wow. And I uh, that taught me that something else that I had seen in the Casey material. I noticed that all the senses would report in his readings. He would describe what things smelt like or what mm-hmm. a room looked like or that kind of thing. And and so what really brought it home to me was I got one of my wife's perfume bottles <laughs> and I buried it in a mason jar and in, in this little, this they had a little squeeze thing. That would make a mist of the perfume that she used. So I've got a, an, uh, she, uh, I, got a bottle of Madame Rokas uh, perfume. That was the perfume she liked, and I, I buried this bottle in a thirty-five millimeter, a thirty, a thirty, a, a, a Mason jar. And the person who did the uh, session for me said, you know, um, th- whatever's in this jar, it's like another little bottle. It's like a bottle inside of a bottle, but I have this strong smell of flowers.
2: Wow. Interesting.
3: And so I realized that all the senses report.
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you to, about that for a second. Because <clears throat> we we do that with creative uh, visionary, I guess. So we same, call same. it. Yeah, because, and hypnosis too. Because yeah. if I ask you to picture yourself on a beach, you know, you can see yourself on a beach, but if you smell the sea air, You know, if you can see the birds around you, hear the birds or kid's playing nearby that you want to kick out, you know, (laughs) make too much noise. Uh, You know, what do you taste? Can you taste the salty air? You know, do you feel the breeze upon your face? It becomes an actual reality. I mean, to the brain, to the subconscious, it doesn't know the difference. That's one of the secrets in hypnosis, which I just, you know, spoiler alert but when you have all the senses involved, it becomes a, a different reality. So in your remote viewing methods, you're asking people to get all their senses involved when they're trying yeah, to there's, find
3: there, There's two kinds of information people get. Okay. They get sense impressions and they have what we call knowingness. Yep. That is, I know what I know, but I don't know why or how I know it. Right, yeah. And so uh, you start with the sense impressions, you ask people to make a little drawing of the major geometric form that they see at the target place. Anyway, so I did lots and lots of those. I don't know, several hundred. Okay. And then I, th- my idea was to see uh, black holes had just been discovered. Ah. And I, so I thought, well, I'll see if maybe these, these distant viewers, as I call them, remote viewers, mm-hmm. if they could locate black holes. And uh, because that would be really triple blind conditions and all of that. And sure. And I had a friend who was an astrophysicist and I had dinner with him one night and he said to me, it's never going to happen, Stephen. People wait years to get on a telescope and they're not <laughs> going to give you their time to see if remote viewers can locate. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So then 80, I started. 80% of the
2: physicists said there's no such thing at that time too.
3: Yeah. So then I, uh, I, I thought, well, What I'm looking for is triple blind conditions to describe targets that everybody knows exist, but everybody also agrees they don't know where they are or in what condition they are. So it's a triple blind experiment. Nobody knows the answer. Only excavation or diving, as it turned out, will reveal that. And as it happened at that time, there was a lot of conversation in anthropology about the fact that most archaeological sites are found serendipitously. Yeah. You now, some guy is plowing a field and he turns up a temple. <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're building a road. It's always and them Templars, uncover, you
4: know.
3: Yeah. yeah, they're building a road and they uncover a tomb or that right. kind of thing. So yeah. it was serendipitous. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was perfect. Remote yeah. viewing could, I could, um, I could do something which everyone agreed was triple blind. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and I could do it using targets that were meaningful to people because I could see that the more meaningful the target was, I would now say the more numinous it was, uh, the the easier it was for people to get accurate information.
2: And get their being
1: involved. Yeah.
3: Right. And so um, it was just a natural match to use remote viewing in archaeology. So I began, as I always do, by reading everything that had been done prior to my getting involved. Mm -hmm. And that ended up being a book called The Secret Vaults of Time, which is about all the archaeological work using non-local consciousness before my getting involved. And and then I... uh, we began the first experiment we did was the talking idol of Ixtl in which is on Cozumel Island in Mexico, locating this idol. And I was interested in that because if you look at history, you can see that uh, many cultures across human history have created cadres of people who are gifted at non-local consciousness and they organized them in a religious context to be oracles. Okay. Uh, the oldest recorded remote viewing in history is in the 46th chapter of Herodotus' Histories of the World, describing an event that occurred in about the 5th century BCE in which uh, uh,
2: Is it Oracle so, of Delphi?
3: Uh, uh, no, it, yes, it involves the Oracles at Delphi, in which they ask, uh, uh, Croesus, the king of the Lydians, gets word that he's going to be attacked by the Persians, Mm -hmm. and so uh, he wants to get advice from the one of the seven oracles. These were cadres. These oracles were cadres of priests or priestesses who were trained in meditative techniques to open to non-local consciousness and provide oracular pronouncements as if the belief was that the, the, the god or goddess was speaking through them.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But that's just a disassociative. I mean, that, anyway, so there were seven of them in the ancient world. And uh, he, so Croesus assembled seven embassies, seven teams, and he sent them out and he said to them, wait till the hundredth day. And on the hundredth day, you are to go into the oracle and ask them what is Croesus, son of Alietes, king of the Lydians, doing. Mm. And so these seven teams of people, these or these uh, diplomatic teams, went out. And the only one whose answer we know is the Delphi one because that was the correct one. Mm. And and then they they on the hundredth day they all went in and they asked the question and. And when they then they came back, and when they came back, each one reported. And when the oracle from Delphi team uh, reported, then Croesus bowed down and gave obeisance because they gave the right answer. And the answer was when the the team went into the the oracular chamber where the Pythianess was. The Pythianess were young women who were trained in mindfulness techniques and who hung from a, sat in a kind of cat's cradle thing over a cleft in the earth from which hydrocarbons bubbled up, Mm -hmm. hydrocarbon gases, psychoactive substances, basically. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah,
3: anyway. Uh, And as soon as they went in, before they even asked their question, she said, I can count the sands of time, the hundred days. And I see the great ocean that they had come from a long way away. And she said, I see a great bronze urn. And in that urn, boiling water. And there is a a, a ram and a turtle that's being cut up and put in this pot of water. And then a great bronze lid is being put on it. And um, so when they got back, and they said this, Croesus was just stunned, because on the hundredth day, he had asked to himself, well, if they said he's sitting on a throne issuing edicts, well, that's what kings do. Mm -hmm. So what could I do that nobody would expect a king to do? So he had a great fire built in the courtyard of his palace, and this tripod brought in, and this great bronze urn suspended from it, filled with water, and he personally cut up the... They uh, Chir- ram and Chir-to. the tortoise threw them in the water. and Anyway, that's the oldest reported wow. remote viewing.
2: But they actually thing. did meditative techniques in 5th century BC.
3: Oh, meditative techniques date back far, far before that. Really? Oh, thousands of years. We don't even know how many, and how far I, back.
2: I got a weird question for you that's kind of remote viewing related. but Then I want to get back into the meat of the remote viewing. They have this thing now they call CE5. Uh, Stephen Greer, I think, started this thing for extraterrestrial contact where the people would send out basically them as a beacon, you know, I'm in this grid, I'm in this city, I'm in this, you know, I mean, we go from uh, country, you know, earth to country, to state, to city, to where in the city, exactly, to basically invite contact from extraterrestrials and and the the media. It's been working pretty well from what I understand, but it's almost like remote viewing in reverse. Does that make sense? Uh,
3: Sure. Well, it's opening to non-local consciousness. Okay. Remote viewing is just a technique, right? Dowsing is another kind of technique.
2: I'm a dowsing
3: guy, yeah, so. Yeah. my doubt so, work. I mean there are a lot of ways to do this. We, okay. we, you don't want to get hung up. it's the tech I, I know there are people who teach the technique,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, but yours is based on it, yours is it, different because you see we like the way you see the world we appreciate the way you see it you know I mean you research everything and you get it down to this crumb where you can take it and run with it. so yeah, your I mean, take on remote viewing to me would be the one that I would trust the most.
3: Yeah, because I wrote a book called "Opening to the Infinite."
2: Yeah, I just and, got a mention um, about opening that. "Opening
3: to the Infinite" is all about how to everything science knows about remote viewing. Mm-hmm. Okay, is uh, the technique I, I, in there? Uh,
2: <laughs> if I buy that book for my wife, is the technique in there?
3: Absolutely. Okay, that's what I'm doing then. It'll teach yeah. her everything there is to know about remote viewing.
2: Yeah, she wanted me to ask you to Skype you sometime and do that, but you know that's a little invasive.
3: That "Opening to the Infinite." Mm-hmm. And tell her to go up to academia.edu and she can download all the, uh, the archaeology papers. They're all in there. And you can get another book I wrote called The Alexandria Project.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And that's about how we discovered Cleopatra's palace and Mark Anthony's palace and the lighthouse of Pharos, one wow. of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So The Alexandria Project and Opening to the Infinite will tell you everything science knows about the subject of remote viewing.
4: Okay, great.
3: And my my problem is that as, you know, it's like religion. Mm -hmm. You know, in religions, they have wars over do you cross from left to right or right (laughs) to left. The same thing has happened in remote viewing. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, there's only the technique. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, we
2: see that all the (laughs) time. Every industry has people like that, including parapsychology. That's the worst one. And no offense to our friends who are parapsychologists, you know, but what they know is right. We see that in paranormal, you know, yeah. people have theories. And if you disagree with their theory, they'll break away from you. You know, yeah, they're so, burning bridges, not building. Yes,
3: exactly. So it, there are a lot of ways to do it. To find there, the way that works best for you. It's like meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I have, uh, I made CDs on how to do meditation and on how to do remote viewing. Also, you can go to www. Nemoscene n e m o s e e n dot com n e m o s e e n dot com nice. and you can get I have CDs I have DVDs all the stuff that I talk about is based entirely on science yes and so it's it's all completely data based and the truth is the key to it as I have said earlier in the first hour mm-hmm. is the ability to attain and sustain intentioned, focused awareness. So there are many different ways to meditate. I I created a way called Meditation for Modern Minds. Okay. Uh, There's another, Meditation for Western Minds, some people call it. But it's basically a technique of meditation that is developed based on science. It has nothing to do with religion.
2: Okay, is there like a uh, some breathing involved or some brain entrainment music? or?
3: Uh... Well, I, there is a... I use a kind of tone called the drone. Okay. It was created by a guy named Harold Grandstaff Moses, which I find is very helpful in helping people move into a receptive state of consciousness. Sure,
2: yeah, sound is are a big thing. a lot of
3: thing. ways to do this. Okay. The, the key is... <clears throat> to stop trying to analyze because, you know, in 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 your life, you get lots and lots of reward for doing things well intellectually, irrationally. Mm-hmm. If you come home and say your teacher's going to fall down the stairs and break <laughs> her leg, people think you're a weird kid. You don't get a lot of positive <laughs> feedback. Yeah,
2: Timmy and I have been there, man. <laughs> yeah,
3: so so the, the, the key to it is you find a technique for attaining and sustaining intention focused awareness that works for you. You ask yourself uh, a typical remote viewing laboratory experiment would be um, I'm going to show you a target in an hour. I don't know what the target is. Nobody knows what the target is because it hasn't been selected yet. I want you to describe what I'm going to show you in an hour and in 55 minutes, a computer is going to randomly select, in my case, in my lab, out of a pool of 1200 targets, it's going to select one. Mm -hmm. So, and then you describe it. In the archaeology experiments, it's just that much bigger. It becomes interdisciplinary. Many different universities get involved. And the use of remote viewing is a technique for locating and describing previously unlocated wrecks or temples or whatever it is. Um, And I run a parallel project, which other people run. I don't actually run it. I, I pay for it. In which we use electronic remote sensing to see whether electronic remote sensing can equal remote viewing. And in every case we have done over many years, uh, remote viewing has succeeded where the electronic remote sensing has failed.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: In any given group that you uh, do this with, what are the percentage of people in that group that do really well? Is it, is it does it the bell curve work for any given group that you're well, doing? Well, when this I with? do
3: the when I do the applied experiments because they're very expensive, I get the very best people I can get. Okay. And we expect to see well. I break the data down into and uh, I do I do it in a way that nobody else does it. I I take every concept and give it an independent alphanumeric designator. So for instance if I said uh the two men sitting in their homes with headphones on that's a sentence. But it's two men sitting home hmm. headphones that's five concepts,
2: right? Yeah, we did so, uh, that in advertising. Yeah, yeah so I then
3: have after the field work is done. I then have independent experts rate every single concept. Correct, partially correct, incorrect, can't be evaluated.
4: Wow.
3: And we expect to see uniformly across many experiments. Between 35 and 40% of the material cannot be evaluated. That's huh. things like, uh, as the man was asking the question, he was thinking about his wife. Mm-hmm. Well, unless he made a record of it, there's no way to know that. So it might be correct.
2: <laughs> right. Can't,
3: no, it's not evaluatable.
2: Yeah, that's our world, you
4: know. <laughs> yeah,
3: of the of the other um, uh, sixty five, seventy five percent, that seventy uh, percent that you can get. You, that can be evaluated. We expect to see between 75 and 85 percent be correct or partially correct, but operational. Wow. So, <clears throat> for instance, I could say if I had said the men wearing black headphones, and, and, and instead I'd said uh, some dark colored headphone, that would be partially correct because it doesn't have black, mm-hmm. but it would still be operational. If you okay. see the yeah, right. that mean. Makes sense. So we expect to see between seventy five to eighty five percent of the material that the experts can evaluate be evaluated as correct or partially correct and operational. And we expect to see well, typically eleven or twelve percent be wrong. Wow. So So these people that you
2: selected as being very good, did have they read opening to the infinite before coming in?
3: Well, the viewers that I was doing when I was running the Mobius Laboratory, I hadn't written the book yet, but oh, okay. we had all worked together for decades. All
4: right.
3: And so, you know, I had, uh, they had, they were individuals. None of them were individuals who would describe themselves, first of all, as remote viewers or psychics. Right. or anything. I don't, I
2: don't call myself a psychic, but no. other psychics call me a psychic. So, no, yeah. they
3: were, they were doctors, engineers. Let's mm-hmm. see. Michael Crichton, the wow. screenwriter, uh, sure. director, yep. uh, Judith Orloff, a psychiatrist, Jack wow. Alk, uh, 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 uh aeronautical engineer, George McMullen, a parts uh, manager at a Chrysler dealership.
2: These, these, uh, well, we got to hang out sometime, man. You know, yeah.
3: I've <laughs> yeah. heard you know, Judith. these
2: people that are like dream people to us and they're friends oh, of yours. So we got to okay. hang out sometime. Just yeah, saying. So
3: these were. Uh, these people were selected because they had done many laboratory experiments and they had, had very good records.
4: Sure.
3: They did it differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they had your trust, though. And that counts.
2: They, had, yeah, they, knew they, you, they knew they had your trust. That helps yeah. the intention. Yeah. That yeah, they, boost it.
3: They knew that I trusted them and, and that they trusted me. So. Mm-hmm. The the remote viewing is like a remote sensing. It's like side scan sonar, proton precession magnetometer. It's just a part of the puzzle. So I would start out uh, to to do the archaeology. I would get a map or a sea chart if it was underwater. Mm -hmm. And I would take all the colors out because we know from research that uh, people are drawn to certain colors right, not yeah, yeah,
2: yeah so
3: we i would either do it like a blueprint where it would all be a kind of gray blue you know that a blueprint okay, is, sure or it'd just be black and white
2: yeah it's and a good um, like good for a control group it's a perfect control situation no,
3: it was it, the idea was to eliminate the names and the and the colors so that there was nothing to cue them
2: yeah no bias involved and yeah. so
3: that uh, the 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 the, the the way we would do this would, would be I would send you the map and I would send you a series of questions in sealed envelopes that were numbered and you would open the envelopes one at a time. But we would begin. Uh, I would ask you, uh, please go over this map and the area that it represents on planet Earth. And my first question is, is the thing that we are seeking to be found within the parameters of the map that you have before you?
2: Oh, nice.
3: And 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 the
2: the words are chosen very carefully, too, I notice Very carefully. Hypnosis is like that. We do that when we uh, uh, bring people under. Because you you have to watch your words very carefully, not to bias them.
3: Hypnosis is just a way of creating intention-focused awareness. True. True. I mean, that's the whole point, right?
2: Right. Yep. Indeed.
3: So I would say to you, okay, go over it. Is there, is the location on the map? And if you said yes, what you're seeking is within the confines of the map, then I would say to you, all right, I please make as small a circle around that location as you can. Okay. And then I would say, okay, your life size, you're standing at the location that you have selected. What do you see? Huh. And th- they might say, well, I don't see anything. Right. And I would say, well, where is the thing that I'm seeking? Oh, well, it's down buried. Mm-hmm. And I would say, OK, uh, go down and stand on the top of the thing that I'm seeking and put your hand over your head. And because you can't ask, uh, it's too analytical, too cognitive to say, what's the distance? Like a number. Right. Right. That's That's a different part of the mind. So I would say to you, okay, Chip or Tim, stand on the top, put your hand over your head. Um, Is your hand, does your hand break the surface? Ah. And I I would know how tall you were because I'd previously gotten your your height. And so I would know how long your arm was. And so if you were, say, 5'11 and your arm was two and a half feet, right? Then I would know. That it was approximately eight feet and a couple of inches before. If you said, "Well, just the tips of my fingers are sticking out,"
2: yeah,
3: or but, if but it was for the person, the other, you're
2: you're getting the, their whole body involved, and again, that brings all the senses together.
3: Absolutely, you see, yeah, that's exactly feels. right. You're you're asking, you're looking, you're asking questions which stimulate sensorial experience. Excellent. Because you have a very sophisticated neuroanatomy that is designed to give you sensorial data.
4: Right. right. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
3: So then I would say to you, um, I would now know how deep it was, and I would say to you, okay, you're at the site. Um, tell me what I'm going to see. Now, you can actually watch this. I, made, I make films of this. Mm-hmm. I do all of this out in the open, witnessed by all kinds of people mm-hmm. so that skeptics, proponents, dozens of people witness this as well as film it so that there's no question about what happened mm-hmm. or what the sequence of events was.
2: And thank you for that.
3: <laughs> yeah, so, well, in fact, before we do the field work, we break down all of the concepts and we then, they emerge as patterns. Oh. So one guy will say, I see uh, big chunks of wood. Another guy will say, oh, I see something like railroad ties. Another person will say, I see these beams of wood. Hmm. So you, that's clearly something that looks like a railroad tie that is a beam of wood. That's the pattern, right?
2: Uh, outstanding, yeah.
3: All, all of the raw data and all of the analysis that and, and the creation of the hypotheses which guide the fieldwork, all of that is notarized and turned over to a third party before you do the fieldwork so that you have an unimpeachable chronology. Mm-hmm. Wow. So there's no question. Nobody can say, oh, you made all that up after you found it, because everything has been notarized and turned over to a third party, and you can actually watch this. If you go up to YouTube and you search on DeepQuest, uh, which was my submarine experiment,
4: okay.
3: or you search on the Alexandria Project, you can actually watch people do this. You can watch George McMullen, for instance, out of 1700 square kilometers, you can watch him locate a buried building down to, in a buried <clears> city <throat> down to 28 inches. Wow. Describing objects as small as five eighths of an inch.
2: Now, any of the documentaries that you made uh, feature this? Yes. Because you, you've great. made several documentaries. Wow. Yes.
3: If you go, if you go to somewhere on YouTube, YouTube and search on Alexandria, Alexandria
2: Project, Project or Deep Quest,
3: Deep Quest yeah. I did Deep Quest was a submarine experiment to locate a ship, and also to test whether, at the time, at that time. People tended to think of this as an electromagnetic phenomena, huh. and, and and I didn't think it was, and the and so I'm the way it. to test it would be to do a submarine experiment because seawater shields against electromagnetic radiation. Wow! And um, and so we did a, um, I did an experiment. I got Leonard Nimoy. Cap, Dr. Oh, Smart My lord,
2: with, we, we are about generation. we're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs>
3: but anyway, you can watch it. You can see it happen. That's it neat. Done?
2: Yeah, consider it done. Hey, we got about five minutes left. Of two things we need to do. Timmy probably has a question. He wants to get in to keep him out of the doghouse, uh, for whatever reason. And we want to get all your information so people can find your books, uh, find your research papers. You know, find you on YouTube. Oh, uh, I've written some of that down. <laughs> but we want to make sure we get all that information. In. But first, I bet Timmy has a question.
1: I just want to say it's been a phenomenal two hours and and we'd like to have you back sometime, Stephen, whenever you're free.
4: Yeah, and
2: sure. we're going to hang out someday, man. Road trip, Tim. You know. and, and I
1: think I'm going to get a hold of uh, Dr. Orloff as well because she has a book up out about uh, empath abilities. And oh, there talk you go. Know. That
2: would be excellent. And I hope we can recreate this ex- yes. experience Very as you exciting. Say, and have you back on. Sure. That's what It feels like we barely scratched the surface. We, we, we did. We, we
1: barely scratched.
2: We love you, man. Stephen A. Schwartz. Stephen with a Ph. By the way,
3: P-H-A-N. not a V. A uh, N.
2: Ph A N. That's right. A N. So <laughs> like more like Stefan. Yeah. Well, like uh,
3: Stefan is really my name, but no, but it's a name Americans don't have. So, what well, by the time I was eight years old, I gave up. <laughs> we wear our, our
2: American ignorance with pride, you know. <laughs> we don't know anything about any place outside of the the states, you know. That's that's right. how we roll.
3: Actually, you know, sixty four percent of Americans have never been outside of America. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, only right that's believable. Oh, only one third of only one third of Americans have passports.
2: Yeah, wow. not me. Yeah, because now they get into your business. You know, I don't want these people in my business just so I can go to England for the first time. I guess
1: I guess my brother and his family are one of those four then, because they travel all over the world. So and they <laughs> yeah. like and they love it.
3: So. All right. Well, anyway, Tim, what was it you were going to say?
1: I just want to say thank you, Stephen, and uh, it's been great. And uh, welcome you back anytime you're free.
2: Yeah, like you know, for the rest of the uh, season.
3: yeah all right well listen guys it's been a pleasure and um you know we'll do it again sometime and and uh yeah i guess the question you asked me um my daily web publication which is free i give it away is Mm -hmm. www.schwartzreport.net. s-c-h-w-a-r-t-z-r-e-p-o-r-t Mm -hmm. schwartzreport Schwartzreport.net. You can get my uh, CDs and DVDs at www.nemoseen.com. Www.nemoseen, I'm getting one. My <laughs> personal my personal website is stephanashwartz.com. Schwartzcom just my name. And um, you can get all of my books on Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble.
2: They're all there. Books. And by the way, some are Stephen A. Schwartz and some are... Stephen Schwartz.
3: Yeah. So
2: spelled like Stefan. I
3: have I have uh, the 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 nonfiction books are uh, Secret Vaults of Time Alexandria Project uh, Opening to the Infinite The Eight Laws of Change and my novels are um, Awakening Alien a novel of aliens and consciousness and the vision a novel of time and consciousness. And uh, you can get all of my research papers. I make it all freely available. You can go either to academia.edu or researchgate.com and search on my name, Stephanie Schwartz. And you can get all my papers and download everything we have discussed today.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'm going to have a lot of begging to do because I'm going to buy all the books, you know. (laughs) Love <laughs> so I got to beg the wife, you know. Boy, I got to figure out something nice to do for her, you know. It's kind of easy, it's been 30 years, you know. Be
3: well, that's good. Yeah.
2: And uh, we just want to remind the listeners: Supernatural Realm every Tuesday and Thursday, live, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on uh, wcet.fm at com. And of course, we're running into the nine o'clock hour with the great phenomenal Michael Vera and Late Night in the Midlands next. So don't touch that dial. And shameless plug, every Monday, uh, yours truly, Chip Reikenthal has a wonderful show called Kindness Beyond the Veil, where we take a kinder look at the paranormal, metaphysical, extraterrestrial, uh, supernatural and psychic worlds to show that uh, benevolent things do happen even in the darkest of places. Kindness Beyond the Veil. Mondays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern and Wednesdays, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern also. Right here on WCTT.FM because that's where the action is. And yeah, we're going to take you in to the great Late Night in the Midlands with Michael Vera. Again, we want to thank our remarkable guests. We absolutely love Stephen A. Schwartz. Uh, And yeah, get get the books, get the material, uh, get the meditation tapes. Uh, Learn some remote viewing uh, All sorts of novels Boy, a great world of knowledge That we've had the honor to have here On The Supernatural Realm Again, Tuesdays and Thursdays 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Right here on WCET.FM Alright, we're going to take you out Listeners, we love you so much uh, Stephen A. Schwartz, we love you Tim Roxbury, big love to you And yeah, I'm going to love myself, why not Feeling chipper today, <laughs> literally So You guys have a great night. Don't touch that dial. Stay tuned for Late Night in the Midlands. Thank you for listening. We love you. Good night.
0: listening to WCT.FM talk radio like no other.